please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where our lesson is going to be this evening. Uh, This morning we talked about baptism, and we talked about baptism from Romans 6, not as much as a call to the unbaptized to be baptized, as important as that is, it was more a call to Christians to remember their baptism and to remember what change took place in them when they were baptized. There is a transfer of allegiance that takes place at that moment. Now, if you're anything like me, I don't know, um, everyone's story is probably a little bit different in here as to how you became a Christian, but I remember as a kid growing up hearing about the steps of salvation, hearing the, uh, the five steps of salvation that you hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And I think in that uh, illustration right there of how to become a Christian, there is a tremendous amount of truth because the reality is this is a, a religion that is taught and that is heard, like you listen. In fact, there are calls throughout the Bible, important calls to hear, to listen. The most important call in all of Israel begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Like the Bible isn't uh, shy about telling people, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hearing is very important. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And certainly faith is a tremendous, uh, tremendously important part of our uh, step into, uh, into a relationship with God. The idea of faith being that of giving our trust and our allegiance to Jesus. It's more than merely mental assent to some facts about Jesus, but it's actually an active, engaging trust that we are putting in him. And I think that that's, that's a very valuable thing. I think the idea of repentance is commonly associated with conversion. In fact, repentance and conversion are very similar ideas. You're you're changing, you're converting, you're you're, uh, transferring from one direction and going in the opposite direction. You're transferring from the realm of Satan to the kingdom of God. There's a a change that takes place there in your mindset that manifests itself in a a change of, of action. If you are living as though you are your own king, and then you come to the realization that, no, Jesus is now my king and Lord, that's going to mean there's a different way of life associated with that. And that's what repentance is all about. And the idea of confession There's an awful lot of truth in that also. Uh, You read through the Bible, and the Bible says quite a bit about confession. What we're going to do tonight in our lesson is talk a little bit about confession. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we sometimes uh, think of as the the baptismal confession or the pre-baptismal confession. Like when people stand right up here, right before they're baptized, and they say, um, you know, we usually actually do it in the form of a question and answer. Uh, Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And they'll respond with, yes, or I do. And and then they're they're plunged into the water. Um, That is something that uh, I think is, uh, it's very ancient. It's something that uh, you can even see pop up a, a few places uh, in the New Testament. And we're going to look at a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that mentions it. But one thing that I think is interesting with all of those, um, and then you can move on to step 5, which is baptism, which is what we talked about this morning, is I think with each of them, there's never a moment where it's like, okay, I've heard, now I'm going to move on from that step and I don't have to hear anymore. Or, uh, I've believed, now I'm going to move on from that step, and belief is no longer an important thing. Uh, They're not so much a checklist that it's like, now that I've done it, I can move on from it. I think each of those should in some way be a general way of life. And I think that becomes pretty clear with the idea of confession. Because uh, in reality, if you're looking through the pages of your New Testament, um, no one ever teaches the gospel 
by doing like those five steps. No one says you need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. That's, that's a, a man-made construction of a lot of gospel truth, a lot of truth from the Bible, and it's a way of memorizing it. It actually originated with, uh, with being able to do it, you know, one per finger, and so it was a good, like, teaching, teaching tool. You can do it here, believe, and that's, yeah, five fingers, five steps, uh, and, so, and so that's kind of how it, it was originated, um, but when we get to that one that's on confession, anytime I see one of those charts about, like, the five steps of salvation, and they usually have verses, like, right next to each one, like, uh, you know, Romans 10, 17 will be right by here. Uh, or by faith, you might have, like, Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, is it impossible to please him? For he who uh, comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And, and uh, confession... Oh, I, repentance, you can see a number of them, like Luke 13, 3 and 5 sometimes will be on there, or even Acts 2, 38, although that's usually saved for step 5. But when you get to the, uh, the confession one, a lot of times the passage there I don't think is actually about standing in the water right before you're baptized and you confess. A lot of times it's Matthew 10, 32 and 33. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33 is when Jesus is sending out his disciples on what sometimes is called the limited commission. He's sending them out to go preach the gospel of the kingdom, and they're going to face opposition, and he's trying to prepare them for that. And he tells them that whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. Uh, and, And the idea is when you go out there into the world, and you're faced with persecution, and you're faced with, am I going to proclaim the message of Jesus as, a, as an apostle, as a representative of him, or am I going to be silent, keep my faith to myself, and in fear, shrink back? And keep He's saying, if you in fear shrink back from declaring who Jesus is in those dangerous moments, then the sad reality that Jesus says is on the day of judgment when you need his advocacy. He very well may shrink back from advocating for you. But if you're one of those people who will declare Christ, even when it's difficult and even when it's scary, then you can rest assured in the uh, confidence that you have in Christ that on the day of judgment, he will confess you as being his uh, before his very Father. And that's a wonderful and encouraging thought. It's, it's a challenging thought, though. It's a challenging idea that we must be ready to make that declaration. Um, that's different than what we usually talk about when we talk about like a, a baptismal confession. Uh, or sometimes confess, and sometimes I've even seen verses that aren't about confessing Jesus at all, but they're about confessing sin. Uh, like First uh, John chapter 1, uh, verses, you know, seven, uh, verse 10, I think it is, uh, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every, uh, unru- every uh, act of lawlessness. Like in that, yeah, confession is the word used, but it's not at all talking about like what you're doing right up here. It's talking about confessing sin. Uh, and, so, and so when you start looking through the Bible for like a step to salvation where you make a confession, you, there's actually not a lot in there. There aren't many examples or direct passages that, that tell you before you're baptized, you need to make this statement. There, that is something that was practiced in church history and seems to go back very early. In fact, one of the controversial passages about it is in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, where you have um, the Ethiopian eunuch who's being taught the gospel, and he, he, Jesus is preached to him from the book of Isaiah, and he says, well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then some of your Bibles 
will have this verse in there that says, and uh, Philip said to him, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you may. And he says, I believe, and then they go down and they baptize. And a lot of your Bibles are not going to have that verse. And it seems that that verse was probably added at a later time, possibly as a demonstration of what the church generally does. Maybe it was written on the margins of a manuscript or something. Like, at this point, this is when you ask them, and this is the point when they, when they answer. Which, the idea of doing it as a question and answer, as I said, it goes back a very long ways. Uh, you know, it wasn't always just uh, someone stood up there and and actively made the confession, it's more they're asked the question and they affirm that confession. Uh, and that goes back to early Christianity, that goes back even to, to that textual variant uh, that is added to the book of, of Acts. But there is a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where I think that type of confession, or at least something very similar to it, is being referenced. And much like our lesson this morning was about remembering the the moment of your baptism, what that means for you, this is largely about remembering that confession you made and sticking with it. Because at that moment, when you do say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you're not merely stating a fact. You're actually pledging yourself to him. Uh, kids across this country, I know they always used to, and in a lot of places they still do, they start off their school day putting their hand across their heart and looking at a flag and saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, there is a different pledge of allegiance to our king. And I think that confession is a lot like that pledge of allegiance. You're saying you're the one that I'm going to give my allegiance to. You're the one who's going to be the Lord of my life. When you call Jesus the Son of God, that's not only a statement of fact about his identity. But Son of God means something. When you look at who the Son of God is, or who's often referred to as the Son of God in the Old Testament, that's king language, that's royal language. Sometimes the king of Israel is referred to as God's son. Solomon is called very clearly God's son. In uh, Psalm 2, about the inauguration of the king, those are psalms that Psalm mentions that God has chosen his son. I will install my son on Zion. And those are passages that get picked up and applied to Jesus because he's not just king. He's king of kings, as we'll see here in just a minute. He's Lord of lords. He's the truest king of the truest king. And so when you pledge your allegiance to him, you're giving him your absolutely everything. It's like that marriage vow. When you say, I do, that means something. And it's something that should forever impact your decision-making from that point forward. When you say, I do, to your spouse, that changes who your loyalty is to. And when you make that confession, you have changed who your loyalty is to. You now have a new king. You now have someone who you've pledged your soul, loyalty, and faithfulness to from this point forward for the rest of your life. And there are times as we as we encounter difficulties or temptations or pressure from this world, that we can be tempted to waver a little bit on that confession. I think Timothy may be someone who, he had a tough job. He was sent to Ephesus. He was apparently a young guy. Uh, he has to teach the gospel there. He has to preach there. But he's not just going into like a neutral or very encouraging environment. I'll say, when I started preaching here, it was like, Everyone's been extremely encouraging and nice and accepting and welcoming. And it's like, I immediately felt accepted and a part of this family. When Timothy goes there, his job isn't just like to be friends with everybody. Uh, when Paul sends him there, he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, 
remain on at Ephesus, that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange teachings or give attention to myths or endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. That's, that's uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Like, Paul lays out there, I want you to go there and tell certain men to shut their mouths with what they're teaching. Like, that's a dangerous job for a young guy to go in. And apparently, it seems at least, some of the elders might be involved in this stuff. Like, uh, like in, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul has his final farewell with the Ephesian elders, he warns them that from among their own midst, ravenous wolves are going to, to come and they're not going to spare the sheep. And then when you get and you read through First um, Timothy chapter 5, Paul is actually giving Timothy instructions on how to go about rebuking an elder. It's like, you go there, there's going to be elders who need to be rebuked, there's going to be people who don't like you, there's going to be people who are already well-respected teachers and they're teaching some nonsense and you need to put a stop to it. Timothy, you have a tough job. And it seems as though Timothy is going to need a lot of encouragement as he tries to do this ministry. Um, There's going to be a lot of things that can distract him. Fear and timidity can distract him. Just thinking, man, I could have an easier life if I pursued something else that could distract him. And so what Paul's going to end up doing in uh, chapter 6 is trying to remind Timothy of what is most important that you pursue right now. And it's not going to be an easy life. It's not going to be wealth, and it's not going to be popularity. It's not going to be uh, some of the pleasures of this world. There is something else you need to pursue, and it's going to be difficult to do it. If you're going to do it, you need to remember that good confession that you made in the presence of many witnesses. Like That confession, it's not just a one-time momentary thing that you say and then you take the plunge. No, that confession is something that when you face temptation years down the road, you remember that confession that you made. That confession is going to manifest itself in a lot. Why should you seek justice and the righteousness of God rather than money? Remember that confession that you made. When you declared Jesus as Lord of your life and as the Son of God, that meant that you were going to pursue his agenda from this point forward rather than your own. Remember that confession. So that's what Paul is going to do as uh, he begins to draw this letter to a close. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul writes, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So when he starts off by saying flee from these things, the natural question is what things are you talking about? Uh, And if you read right before that, it seems that wealth is a big part of this. In fact, uh, this section that we're going to read is right in between two different sections on wealth. The first part of it is about not making wealth your number one goal in life. Uh, There are a lot of people who seem to want money more than anything else. In fact, they love money, and they're going to spend their entire lives trying to get money. And these people, some of them might be wealthy, some of them might not be wealthy. They might be people who are poor, who look with envy on those who have money, and they spend their life craving that kind of wealth. And Paul is going to say that there are even people who preach the gospel as a means, not of godliness, but as a means of generating wealth. Like, they they use godliness to try to get wealth. And he's saying that I don't want you to have anything to do with that stuff. Once wealth becomes your God, you'll do just about anything to get it. And the love of money becomes a root of every kind of evil imaginable. Any bad thing that you can think of, people have done it for money. 
you ever murdered people? Has anyone ever been murdered for money? Yes. Has anyone ever uh, left their spouse because of money? Yes. Has anyone ever uh, cheated and lied? And yes, like all kinds of terrible things happen once money becomes your God and you'll do anything to, to serve and to worship that God. So Timothy, don't do anything like that. After this section, he talks again about money, and it's less about those who spend their whole lives desiring money. It's more about those who have it. And he says, instruct those who are rich in this present age to not to be conceited. I mean, that sometimes happens. You get a lot of money, you begin to think you're better than people who don't have money. He says, don't be like that. Uh, don't get conceited. Don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. I mean, they're here today and gone tomorrow. There are people who thought they were financially secure for the rest of their lives, and then terrible, unexpected things have happened, and all of a sudden they, they have nothing. It's like, there's a God you can serve who you can always count on to be there. Just about nothing else in this world can you count on. I mean, nothing you can you count on like that. Certainly not wealth. It's uncertain. It's fleeting. And so he tells the people who are rich not to be conceited, not to fix their hope on riches, but to be generous and always willing to share. You're allowed to be rich in a Christian, but you better be a generous Christian. You're not allowed to be rich and not generous. Uh, that's part of it. Uh, and so he, he spends quite a bit of time talking about wealth on both sides of this, this message to Timothy. But right there in the middle of it, he says to flee from these things, though. Those are not going to be the things that define you. You pursue something else instead. You pursue righteousness, that right relationship with God, that declaration of innocence and rightness before God our judge, and godliness, the idea of, of living and trying to look like God, trying to, to live in such a way where people can see God's goodness in you. Faith, pursue a greater trust and loyalty to God. That's not always easy to do. Sometimes it's easier to put your trust in the things that you can see right in front of you, the things that you can, you know, tangibly grab a hold of, the things that you know in an instant can solve your problem. It's like if I'm in debt, really and truly, if I see $10,000 on a table that could solve my problem right now, or I have the opportunity to pray, I'm going to be like, I know prayer is important, but I know this can solve my problem right here. You don't always have that option in front of you, but it is often much easier to put your trust in the thing that you can grab than the thing that you just have to, to put your faith in. And what he's saying is, don't always put your faith or your trust in the thing that you can see, but do the difficult step of putting your faith in that which you cannot see. That takes time, practice, training. He goes on to say that you should pursue love. There's nothing greater than love. Whether you're talking about faith and hope, love is the greatest of these things. We're talking about the greatest commands. It's to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is priority over anything and everything else. If you get love right, pretty much everything else that God says falls in order. So that's worth pursuing. Pursue perseverance um, or steadfastness, some translations say. When you are facing the difficulties in ministry and in life and in faithfulness that Timothy has to face, perseverance becomes really, really important. Uh, it becomes extremely important, the idea that I'm going to stick with this through thick and thin no matter what. I'm not giving up. I can, God is always faithful and I can always trust in him. I want others and I want God to be able to consider me faithful, to be able to trust in me. 
I want to be able to demonstrate that I am with him no matter what, no matter how hard things get. I will be faithful and I will be steadfast in this. And finally, he mentions gentleness. If you're going to be in ministry, and if you're going to have to do some of the types of things that Paul has to do, gentleness becomes a really, really important part of that. Uh, Rebuking an older man is to be done out of love like you would a father, is how Paul starts off chapter 5. Like, if you're going to do some of these difficult things, do it with a spirit of gentleness and do it with love. Sometimes I think um, gentleness gets a bad rap. <laughs> Sometimes I think people think of gentleness as softness or sugarcoating or, or whatever. Gentleness is actually really important. Meekness is really, really important. It's not the same thing as weakness. It's not the same thing as timidity. It's responding to others with deep love and care about what they need to hear. Uh, I remember hearing uh, an, an illustration one time. It was like there, there was a church that was looking for a preacher, and uh, one guy came, and he preached out of Luke 16. That's the uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, and then the next week, another preacher came, and he preached that exact same passage from Luke 16. And uh, they ended up hiring one guy rather than the other. And uh, people were wondering, you know, why? They gave very similar sermons. It was on the same topic. Why did you choose one over the other one? And the idea was, well, one of them preached it uh, like he was happy the rich man was there, and the other one preached it uh, out out of love for him. You know, and that's basically kind of the idea is sometimes we can think that as we try to Uh, stand for truth, and as we try to correct error, the bolder or the ruder you are, uh, the more condescending you are, the bolder and the better it is. And uh, that's not always the case. Sometimes the boldest thing you can do is done in the spirit of gentleness and love. And so he tells them to pursue these things instead. These are going to be key to a successful uh, life of faith in Ephesus. And so as he pursues these things, He's going to have a fight on his hands. Uh, It's not going to be easy. And so when he gets to verse 12, he says to fight the good fight of faith. Notice uh, this is a fight of faith. It's not a fight of weapons. It's not a fight of violence. It's not a fight of insult. The fight that he's engaged in is a fight of faith. Uh, The end of 2 Timothy, Paul, looking back on his life as he's facing his own death, he uses the same language to describe what his ministry is all about. He tells Timothy to, uh, to endure the afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make foolproof your ministry for the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I think of all passages in Scripture that, uh, that encourage me, uh, something that I would love to be able to say as I'm nearing my end, something you want written on your tombstone, you're going to have a hard time finding one better than that. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he's encouraging Timothy, you're going to have a long fight ahead of you, but stick with it. If you pursue the right things, you can be faithful and successful through it. He says in verse 12, as he continues, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You were called to something glorious. You were called to eternal life. So take hold of it. Don't let it pass you by. Don't ignore it in a pursuit of other things. Eternal life is very much available for you. Take hold of it. And, notice verse 12 continues, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's kind of what we've been building towards. That's what I started off talking about. He makes reference to this good confession that Timothy made in the presence of many witnesses. I think that very well may be 
the type of confession that we're talking about right before someone takes the plunge. That good confession, there's people around, they're watching you, and you audibly commit yourself to God before them all. That's a powerful thing to do in a community of faith. When you have people around you who are united uh, in the family of God, who love you and who are welcoming you with open arms to be a part of their family forever, not even just in this life, but also in the age to come. You have people who love you and are welcoming you in, and you pledge that I want to be part of your family. I am going to accept the lordship of Jesus over my life. He is the son of God, and I'm giving myself over to him. That is a communal commitment, and he's, that's why he mentions the many witnesses. He doesn't just say, and remember that good confession you made, but he says, among the many witnesses, think about each of the faces that saw you and that is counting on you and that believes in you. That's an important thing to remember in times of temptation, in times of weakness, in times where your faith is wavering. Remember the good confession you made and remember the many witnesses who were there. It's one of the reasons I do think there's, there's value, there's theology in uh, doing this publicly, in doing it where there are people around who can see it. I'm not saying that you can always do that or there, that every time that's the only way you can do it, but there's value in it in remembering that there were people who were watching me as I made this public profession of my faith before God. Paul tells Timothy to remember that. And then in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God. That's where it gets serious. Uh, he's calling on some witnesses for this admonition to Timothy. And the witnesses who are going to witness this charge, this admonition, um, are God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no more important witnesses than that. By the way, when you make that good confession of faith, and you think about those witnesses who are there present, it's not only the faces in the room that you can see who are watching but you have a God in heaven, and you have the Lord at his right hand who is watching you as you make that profession of faith. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now that's a reminder that Jesus was in flesh, and Jesus also stood before men, and Jesus with his life on the line before a Roman appointed ruler, made that good confession right before his death. That confession did cost Jesus his life. All right, you made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Remember that. And before Jesus, who also made a good confession, right before Pontius Pilate, right before his own crucifixion and beating and death, like, remember that he is with you and watching you. You're not alone in this thing. You have Jesus who loves you very much, who has gone through what you're going through, who has endured, and who, has, who was faithful to his confession even when it cost him his life. You remember that confession also. You remember the confession that you made, and you be faithful come what may. Verse 14, this is what he's charging him to do that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, keep the commandment. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but I have to think it's probably what he said earlier about fleeing from these things and pursuing these other things instead. That command that he was just given, he's saying, do that and do it faithfully until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do it until the end. Be able to say on that final day, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Then verses 15 and 16, he draws uh, his, his admonition to a close before he gets back to talking about riches. He says, which he will bring about at the proper time. The coming of Jesus will be brought about at the proper time. He who is 
the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He ends with a word of glory or a word of praise. The, the term that's often used for this uh, when Paul does it, is, is, or when anyone does it, is a doxology. Um, Doxa is the Greek word for love or for, for glory, and uh, logos, ology, uh, would be like the word word. And so what he's, this is a word of glory. It's a word of praise. And you'll see Paul do this sometimes. Paul will be writing about something, and it'll often be something that's central to his message, that's really emotionally compelling, something that Paul cares deeply about. And he'll just like stop in the middle of his letter and word a prayer of praise to the God who is behind all things. And as he is encouraging Timothy to remember the faithfulness of Jesus, to remember the coming of Jesus, to remember the commitment he made to Jesus, he can't help but stop and remember, like, there's kings out there, but there's a king who's above them all. There's people out there who wear the title Lord, but there's a Lord who's above them all. There's only one who possesses immortality. There's only one who dwells in unapproachable light. There's only one who no man has seen or can see. He's the one that you ought to remember through all of this. He's the one you're doing this for. To him be glory, be honor, be eternal dominion. Amen. It's a pretty powerful charge, I think. I think it's a pretty powerful uh, way to remind someone to be faithful in the face of adversity. Remember that confession you made. Remember your baptism. Remember the commitment that you made on that day. Uh, to each of us here, I don't know what our week, what our month, what our year, what our rest of our lives will hold, but I do know that there is a Lord of Lords and a King of Kings. There's a Jesus Christ who is returning, and if you're a Christian, you've pledged your loyalty, allegiance, and commitment to him until that day. Remember that. Be faithful to it. And if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, you can make that pledge today. Eternal life is right there. Take hold of it. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. God is making it available to you. If we can help you do so, please come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.